Hey everyone, Tom here. Before we get into this week's episode of Device Talks Weekly, I wanted to share a bit of a conversation I had with Mark Weed. Mark's the chair of the Division of Engineering at the Mayo Clinic, and he's going to be moderating a panel at, for us on Device Talks Tuesdays, which is coming up this Tuesday on May 19th. Device Talks Tuesdays is our new program to bring the conversations from our Device Talks meetings to you. It's part of our Device Talks at Work program. So wherever you're working, whether it's in your bedroom, your basement, your dining room table, we want to bring leaders to you. We want you to be able to connect with them as well. This is not going to be another podcast. This will be what I like to call a connected conference, a webinar, where you will have the opportunity to talk to Mark and the other distinguished panelists from the Mayo Clinic about how they're bringing patients back to Mayo, what they're doing to get their patients back. Let's listen to this clip from Mark. Now, instead of preparing for the surge, we're trying to figure out how do we bring elective procedures back, right? You can't delay those things forever, both financially and from a patient standpoint, right? Patients need to, to be seen and, and, and treated, conditions progress. Um, so now the, the, the focus is how do we bring patients in but make sure that our patients are safe from each other and that our staff are safe as well. Well, that's great. I hope you'll join us on Tuesday at our Device Talks Tuesdays meeting. It's happening at 4 p.m. Eastern. You can go to devicetalks.com to register. You can register for this one or any of the Device Talk Tuesday meetings that we'll have up there. There's four up there right now. We're adding more every week, so you'll see some more up there. These are free to you. We just want you to be part of the Device Talks community going forward. So go to Device Talks Tuesday, register, and I hope to talk to you directly on May 19th. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Hey, everyone, this is Tom Salemi. Welcome back to episode 10 of Device Talks Weekly. Very grateful to have you here. Grateful to everyone who's been part of this program. We have uh, had great support from the medtech industry. We'd love some more. Uh, if you're enjoying these podcasts, please do share them. I know every podcast person says that, but uh, it would be very helpful for us if more people were, were listening. Uh, the more, the better. The better the guests, the better the content. So uh, please, we really would appreciate your support. That's enough begging. I want to tell you a little bit about this week's episode before we get into our conversation with Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device and Medical Design and Outsourcing. We talked today with a couple of investors. Uh, one is Justin Klein. Justin previously had been a, a partner at NEA, New Enterprise Associates, where he did really well investing in, in med tech startups. Uh, he left NEA last year and joined with Kirk Nielsen, formerly of Versant, to form Vensana Capital. Vensana Capital is a, a firm that is based, well, Kirk is in Minneapolis. Uh, Justin is on the East Coast near D.C., but they invest nationally in med tech companies, and they're really looking at companies of all stages. And uh, the two of them have done well for their previous firms, so expectations are high for Vensana. I talk with Justin a bit about how he is investing in this climate, what the uh, changes to the world have meant for medtech uh, startups, for folks trying to raise capital, to, for VCs who are trying to invest capital, how valuations have been impacted, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get into that conversation in just a moment. 
Then I talked with Duke Rolin. Duke is a very successful entrepreneur. Has sold several companies to uh, to startup companies to larger companies like Covidian. He's uh, generated billions in uh, in sales from these companies. So, or these companies have been sold for billions. So Duke clearly knows what he is doing. He now is chairman of Ajax, which is a holding company that has invested in several therapeutics and services companies. So we'll talk with Duke more as an operational person about how they have worked during the pandemic, what changes have they made, what has happened to their clinical trials, what has happened to their workforce. Uh, he brings interesting perspective because, again, they invest both in services and therapeutics. And we'll wrap up that conversation talking a bit about uh, the state of employment. Duke has, has some what I thought was really terrific advice for people who are looking for their next opportunity. So before we get into those conversations, I want to hear what's up with my friend Chris Newmarker of Mass Device. All right, we're here with Chris Newmarker, Executive Editor of Life Sciences at WTWH Media, a.k.a. Mass Device and MDO. Chris, this is episode number 10. Can you believe it? I, hey, you know, time flies by when you're having fun. I think you're officially a podcaster now, so update that LinkedIn profile. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> so this has been an interesting week, an interesting couple of months, obviously, in MedTech. But uh, I think one of the more interesting dynamics has been the industry's relationship with the FDA, which has been uh, very generous with, uh, with issuing of EUAs for good reason. We need, we need a test right. and we needed treatments. But this week, it seems like there's been sort of a kind of a, a applying of the brakes a bit. Uh, what's, what's happening on the diagnostics front? Uh, I mean, probably the big thing is that, you know, there's been, um, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, alarms raised about the, uh, the antibody tests that have been, uh, that have been rolling out. Um, FDA took a lot of criticism initially over uh, diagnostic tests. Uh, you know, that you know, there, there was, you know, criticism that the, the tests were too slow to roll out uh, as the pandemic was, was starting. And so, you know, and now they're getting criticized for the whole other, you know, side of it that, you know, they've got like a house subcommittee and the American Medical Association and, you know, independent scientists saying, hey, the, you know, there's, you know, too many antibody tests that, uh, you know, flooded the mar market that are, you know, performing poorly or inconsistently. And so now, you know, they, um, you know, they, uh, you know, they told uh, companies selling the test to submit validation information. And, and then within a few days, we had BD that had uh, been uh, touting a test back in March that, you know, then turned around and pulled it from the market. So they're going to, they're, they're holding off until they can get a next generation test out there. Um, you know, this is a, a test that, that they've been working on with um, biomedomics. Uh, so, you know, kind of like increase of, you know, regulation of the antibody test, you know, for good reason, we want to accurate test so that we can, you know, so that we can like actually really have a grasp of, you know, how, how widespread COVID is in the population. Mm -hmm. and, um, and you don't want people getting, you know, false, uh, you know, false positives or false negatives. You know, people would like to know whether they've had it in the past as well. Like um, they, they aren't sure how much immunity that would give you, but you know, it could give you maybe at least a little peace of mind you've been through it, I suppose. And, and Abbott's test came under a bit of a fire, although Abbott is, is saying that it wasn't being used properly. What's uh, any takeaway from, from that uh, exchange this week? Right. You know, and this was, this was a diagnostic test, you know, like one of the, you know, and you know, actually a rapid, you know, diagnostic, um, like there's actually published reports. This is the test, you know, used in the white house, but uh, there were some NYU researchers that were, uh, you know, you know, saying that, uh, you know, the test was, um, you know, that was, you know, raising some issues about accuracy um, 
hasn't been published yet, hasn't been peer-reviewed. Um, Abbott's, you know, kind of fired back and was saying that the researchers weren't, uh, you know, using their uh, their tests properly in the in the study. But um, yeah, they've been kind of they're you know they've been kind of um, you know taking some some criticism themselves over um, you know over diagnostic you know test accuracy. But I, I I'm sure this is going to be an ongoing issue. Is you know like like okay we we had the F, you know FDA saying hey we need to get tests out. Um, and now, you know, the flip side is, you know, we're kind of like having to try to increase regulation or do mm-hmm. what we can to try to make these things, make sure these things are accurate. Because, I mean, it's, it's just you know, public health officials around the country are just saying this is like one of the really important tools they need to, you know, just get things under control as we, um, you know, as we start reopening our economy. On the, on the plus side, I thought uh, Sean Woolley had a great uh, article about uh, telehealth, and that's something that we all want to see, I think, or we all want to remain as part of our healthcare options. What was, uh, what was Sean writing about this this week? Well, yeah, the really interesting thing is Frost and Sullivan uh, came out with a report about, uh, you know, telehealth, and, you know, and their kind of their big point is that, you know, all this need for social distancing right now is really kind of pushed you know, physicians to, to use telehealth a lot more. Uh, and, uh, you know, and they're saying, you know, hey, this could last, um, you know, that, you know, we could, you know, see the uh, telehealth market experience sevenfold growth by, by 2025. So, you know, it's always been kind of a slow thing trying to get telehealth, you know, going in the US. Uh, but, you know, this, this might, uh, this might be it, we might see a lot more, you know, virtual visits and patient monitoring. Um, it's, uh, it's kind of seems to be a theme of this pandemic overall that there were like trends that were already happening and that you know the pandemic and this uh, terrible recession in, in some ways were like kind of pushing those trends like a lot lot more like a lot faster than you know we would have otherwise right, let's take a quick break from this conversation with Chris Newmarker to hear from Justin Klein as I mentioned at the top Justin's a co-founder of Vensana Capital a new medtech venture capital firm. Justin, though, has been investing in MedTech for over a decade, so he knows when to invest capital and when not to invest capital. So I really wanted to hear his perspective on how he is viewing investing during this pandemic and after this pandemic. Let's listen. How do you look at your current portfolio and do you make any changes there? I've talked to people who have said that that funds have been cut. Uh, that, that that venture firms or investors have sort of pulled out out of fears because they just wanted to hold on to their capital and, and closed up companies. How, how did you look at your existing portfolio? I'm not suggesting you did that. And and say, and did you make any changes after that internal look? Well, uh, you know, up front, one of the things that we we're frankly just lucky uh, to be in a position we're in is we didn't have a large portfolio of mm-hmm. existing companies. So our ability to focus and try to help the small number of companies that we're actively invested in, you know, is something we turn to first. And I think, you know, in each case, it's a little bit different depending on what their objectives were. But, you know, we really thought about how to extend runway, you know, manage the business as efficiently as possible. And frankly, put the companies in a position where, you know, they preserve as much optionality as they can so that week to week or month to month, they can readjust to, you know, Opportunities as they present, you know, for example, at Intact Vascular, you know, we're actively growing commercial sales of our TAC product for endovascular disease. And yet what we're observing is that certain pockets of the country are more amenable to doing clinical cases in hospitals versus office-based labs. 
than other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. And that's going to continue to shift over time, much like we've seen the, the pandemic and outbreaks, you know, happen on a local basis. And so I think, you know, Intact has developed a, a commercial playbook that's positioned them really well to be nimble and grow as the opportunities present themselves. Did you have, um, did you have meetings or calls with, with all of your CEOs and boards? Did, did everyone get together to sort of touch base and see where you're at? Yeah, I think we did. I mean, we of course wanted to think carefully about how we forecast 2020, you know, mm-hmm. in light of this new normal and then how we think about 2021 and, and the capital that these companies have raised, you know, in order to fund them through to a, a period where the clouds maybe aren't as dark. And I think even like in the case of Intact, you know, April, you know, was better than we expected, you know, in March. And I, I expect it's still going to be sort of a month to month experience as we all navigate this. But um, I think increasing communication broadly with the companies, with members of our team, you know, and companies with their customers and other stakeholders has been a key part of, of developing a, a good response. And how about looking externally at new deals? Have you developed a policy where you're not going to make new investments until things become more settled? Are you raising the bar or changing the bar in any way or just the, 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 the qualities of the companies you're, you're typing, you're, you're looking to invest in? Has, has that changed at all because of the uncertainty connected to the pandemic? Well, I think that we, um, we, we would argue we always keep a high bar. And I think that is the case. I would say some of our criteria may shift and some of the ways in which we think about um, different aspects of a therapy, you know, might play better in an environment like this and others might see some weaknesses. So for example, um, you know, procedures that can happen in the outpatient setting or an ambulatory surgery center may be advantaged over those that require a hospital stay. Uh, similarly, any kind of intervention where local anesthesia is adequate versus generally anesthesia and intubation or a procedure that requires a risk of a prolonged ICU stay for recovery are all things that I think kind of move down our list a little bit. And, and the flip of that is, you know, increasingly therapeutic interventions or new ways of providing care that help, you know, manage some of the impact of the conditions that our hospitals and caregivers and patients, frankly, are facing, I think, move up the list. Um, you know, from a PACE perspective, I, I think our team has, has done a really nice job prosecuting, you know, different opportunities. Um, we've been really busy. I'd say, though, you know, since early March, we've been as busy as a team and doing new investments as we had ever been in the prior sort of year plus of the firm's history. Um, some of that was because we were actively engaged with companies that, that we were getting close to investing in. And, and so we've closed two investments since March. Um, we also just signed up to a term sheet for a third, you know, and that was a project that we initiated, um, you know, in sort of the later part of March as all this was unfolding. And so, I think that, again, we're, we're going to continue to be selective with maybe some tweaks to our criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, we do think carefully about reserving capital for follow-ons, and, and we're thinking about how to adjust expectations for milestones and achievement and capital requirements. But fundamentally, I think the companies we're investing in are developing really important innovations to tough problems. A lot of those tough problems are only exacerbated by what's going on with coronavirus, the, mm-hmm. the underlying healthcare issues and needs aren't changing. 
we just have to make sure that they can be delivered in a way that um, you know allows their their those innovations to have the impact that that they need to have. Great. And just two more quick questions: the 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 valuation of those deals change at all, or more broadly, someone raising money in in May will they get a lower valuation, or will there be more valuation pressure? We'll say than there might have been in February. I I think there there are going to be changes right around valuations are or aren't to terms. I think there will. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's sort of inevitable. It's, it's not dissimilar to what we saw, you know, in the 2008, 2009 period. And, you know, we have to remember the, the dislocations in the market caused by the financial crisis, you know, reverberated for, you know, not just a few months, but, you know, a few years after there was really stability. It's not to say good things, you know, won't happen. I think there's still a significant need for M&A by large med tech companies looking at, accessing innovative technologies through their businesses. There's clearly a lot of unmet clinical need and, and physician appetite for new solutions. These problems has never been stronger. Um, but inevitably, you know, we, we will see pullbacks in access to capital from sources that were maybe less committed in a difficult time than they had been over the last you know, few years where we've seen, you know, I think of a really robust and healthy you know, medical device financing environment. I think ultimately that that will impact some valuations and terms, but we haven't seen anything where, um, you know, sort of eyebrow raising, you know, terms or valuations are are on the table or, nothing, or being talked about in deals. Nothing punitive. So. And and final question. This is just uh, the, I think the pandemic has exposed the supply side of things. Uh, where where our materials are coming from? How we're going to continue to to make these products in an emergency like this one? Does that trickle down to, to your level? Are you looking more at how products will be built once they're approved and where those materials come from? Or is that really the something that you'll leave to either the later version of your company or an eventual acquirer? Well, I think, I think number one, it's, it's always something we think about. You know, we, we'd always try to mitigate sole source supplier risk for critical components of any of our technologies. I think in this environment, and, and maybe because our companies tend to be a little earlier stage in terms of their scale, whether they're doing clinical development or even early stage commercial companies, you know, the volumes that they demand from their customers aren't, aren't huge. Um, so we haven't seen any real supply chain disruptions, for example, across the companies we work with. But we definitely think carefully about you know, what's, what's the risk of that. And, mm-hmm. and particularly as manufacturing becomes global, you know, transportation is an integral part of how that happens. And that's being compromised right now. We're, we're definitely giving thought to it. Um, I, I, ideally, though, we're also investing in companies that have relatively straightforward, you know, bill of materials and manufacturing, which rolls into a low cost of goods and high gross margins. So to some extent, some of the criteria we prioritize in our investing helps maybe mitigate some of that. But um, yeah, it's, it's for sure a, a new consideration we've had to elevate. Excellent. Well, I know you need to go. Justin Klein, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure. I now like to hear from Duke Rolin. Duke, as I mentioned at the top, is a very successful medtech entrepreneur and executive. Just scroll through his LinkedIn profile and see all the companies he has founded and sold. You're talking about Epics, talking about Spyrox. He was part of Fox Hollow. He was president of Fox Hollow, Fox Hollow when that was sold to EV3, CV Ingenuity. It goes on and on companies that have been acquired for over a billion dollars. So Duke knows how to start, run, and, and sell 
med tech companies. But this is a unique time. So I was eager to hear how Duke is managing his companies during this time. He's currently the chairman of Ajax, which is a large holding company backed by KKR, the private equity group. So Duke is uh, has a lot of companies and projects going on. So his perspective, I thought, was very unique. And as I mentioned at the top, I thought he had some really great advice for uh, folks in medtech. Let's listen. When did this become capital T, capital P, the pandemic, an, an issue that you needed to, that you knew was going to change your world and how you do business? Uh, we started following it, obviously, in January and thinking about it very seriously in February. In March, <clears throat> probably about two weeks before the shelter in place uh, hit our area, we ended up making a call that we were going to curtail or at least postpone all of our clinical studies because we didn't want our our employees going into hospitals, mm -hmm. uh, primarily in Europe. So it, it became real serious for us uh, right at the beginning of March. We have three companies in Germany, and, and uh, Germany was getting hit, as you know, really hard. So uh, it, it became real, very real for us right around that time. Can, can I just, I'm curious, I mean, clinical trials are the, the lifeblood of a, of a company like yours. Uh, how difficult was that decision? I mean, obviously, your employee safety is number one, but still, you're really uh, taking a lot of wind out of your sales by, uh, by committing to doing that. Yeah, no, 100%. So everything, uh, financing all the way to uh, the outcomes of uh, everything that you've been working on for years is reliant on getting the clinical validation that comes from clinical trials. So we did not take that, uh, make that decision uh, uh, lightly. We, we, um, we ultimately decided that it was just an inevitability that um, uh, within a week or two weeks, there was gonna be uh, a shutdown of these hospitals because of the need for uh, hospitals to be treating COVID patients. And so uh, we got a little bit ahead of it, but you know, it, I always refer back to what happened in the Tylenol crisis when Tylenol just pulled everything off the market because mm -hmm. it was the right thing to do, irrespective of the financial and strategic implications. And for us, uh, it is the right thing to do to keep our employees, which are the lifeblood of our organization, safe. And uh, so as much of it, as much of a financial challenge as it was, uh, the decision was quite easy in terms of what was the right thing to do for our employees. That's great. I want to, I want to get into the sort of restarting in a moment, but, but let's, let's again, follow chronologically. So you made that decision with the clinical trials. What, what did you have to do internally to, uh, to adapt to this, this new age? You know, it's interesting. So, you know, one of the things that happens when you're, you're running at a 120 miles an hour is you start focusing on the urgent. So you're very reactive to problems that arise based on trying to knock down dominoes as you work towards uh, accomplishing your objectives. Uh, in this case, it's clinical trials, et cetera. One of the things that was the blessing, and, and I think for everybody, it's trying to figure out what are the learning points, what are the blessings that you can find from this. For us, it was the opportunity to slow down and to go from being reactive to focusing on strategic. So really reevaluating, okay, what is the objective of the preclinical programs that we're working on? What is the objective of the clinical programs? What are we trying to really accomplish and 
um, by slowing down and uh, reevaluating um, at a 30,000 foot level versus being in the weeds at, you know, a foot, we were able to say, you know, we should be doing something a little bit differently in one case with that clinical program. And another company, which is a services company that we have, we said, you know, we should be really <clears throat> focusing on profitability right now and figuring out how, you know, we could, we could leverage what's going on in, uh, you know, in the, in the macro world right now to, to figure out how we improve profitability. So, you know, it's been, it's been challenging, um, uh, but the benefit has been being able to step back, take a breath, look at where we are as a company's and and then recast um, potentially uh, reaffirm or recast reaffirm some of the pro programs that we are doing that you know boom we checked where we are and we're going in the right direction recast some companies where you know we were focusing really hard on say top line growth it was time to focus on profitability and we sort of redirected to do that so it's it, it's uh, management wise it is it's been incredibly. Uh, uh, it's been great because uh, Zoom has become a daily part of our lives and mm -hmm. uh, we're connecting with, you know, tons of employees. Uh, I am personally because I have the time to do it and because Zoom is enabling me to do it. So that's the that's the benefit of, of actually uh, the pause that COVID has created. And how have the how have your companies changed uh in in size i mean i'll be i'll just be straight out have you had to make reductions in in workforce like a lot of companies have have you had to make any adjustments uh to to again compensate for lower revenues coming in coming in or a delay in financing because of the suspended clinical trials yeah so in all the therapeutic companies we've not made any changes we run a really capital efficient lean uh organizational model and uh, we also focus from early, early financing uh, life to making sure that we have the capital committed to get this thing, these companies all the way through to value creation inflection points. So we have the money. Um, and so we made the commitment, just like we made the commitment to, to, to postpone clinical studies and keep our patient, our, our employees out of out of hospitals, we early on made the commitment to not uh, fire any employees. So everybody is safe and sound and, um, and working hard. Uh, with our services company, what we did do is uh, focus on driving profitability by transitioning from a fixed rate to a variable rate, uh, an hourly rate um, uh, structure. And so we didn't get rid of employees, but we, we restructured so that they're motivated to work hard and, and produce, uh, but we're paying for, uh, for the time that they actually spend. So mm -hmm. it's, you know, the objective is to try and do our part to keep people employed and, and not contribute to the, the massive unemployment numbers that are uh, gonna be plaguing our country for a while, uh, but at the same time to make sure that uh, we're being smart and prudent from a financial standpoint for the health of each individual organization. And going into going back, to, well, let's, talking about those changes, but also the the change in process that you talked about earlier. We had the chance to slow down and take the thirty thousand foot view. It, are these? Do you see value in finding a way to? continue to do that once things sort of get back to into less crisis mode. I don't say, I don't want to say normal, but 
is that something that you need to that we that most companies or more companies need to do is to to find a way build in a way to to slow down and really take a look at the long term uh, instead of just uh, maybe just focusing on those those shorter term deadlines I absolutely think it's it's critical i uh, so we've implemented changes that um, to, to to sort of manage through covid in terms of you know Monday and Friday uh, uh, calls, right? Uh, Monday, we're dealing with operational. Uh, Friday, we're dealing with strategic. And the force within the organizations to think about the short term and the long term is incredibly important. It's forcing everybody to think about the strategic implications of what they're doing and make sure that there's relevance for their daily activities that tie into the larger strategy. And uh, that's like, fundamental to everybody moving in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, you know, if you were to go to every employee within every one of our companies right now and say, do you understand what you're doing and why what you're doing ties to uh, the larger initiatives and objectives of the organization? Right now, they would say, absolutely. I think six months ago, they wouldn't understand the strategic implications of their activities. So, Absolutely. It's something that uh, is been critical for us during this COVID period of time, but I, uh, it's a, it's an implementation. It's a, it's something we implemented that will definitely continue forward. So yes, the answer is yes, we, we should continue to do that. And is there, this is something that just came to me. Is there a resizing going on? I talked to a few CEOs, not in therapeutic companies, more services companies like the ones I'm, I'm a part of where, they say, all right, we're, we're basically back to where we were in, in 2016 in terms of revenue and size, and unfortunately, in some cases, employees, but just everyone seems to be saying, okay, we need, we need to at least this point cut back and resize. Is that an option for companies that you invest in to, to say, okay, we've lost a couple of years of, of progress, or is that not acceptable? I think on the services side, it's inevitable to, to look at, at, at where you go uh, based on what's happened with COVID. However, I think that uh, I, for us, we look at our ability to retain the top line. We're services companies. So in this case, we're, we're dealing with autistic children. That need and the care that we provide doesn't wane during a period of, of disruption like COVID has created. Absolutely. So it's more fundamental to think about new ways to provide that care. And uh, so we don't expect that we're going to see a regression to, you know, two years ago's revenue line. What, what we're really forcing is a progression to a higher profitability based on the changes that have been required telehealth versus you know, in-store, uh, home visits versus in-store, et cetera. Mm -hmm. and, um, and the acceptance that has come both from uh, the, re the insurance uh, providers as well as the patients um, who have now accepted that that's a, that's, a, that's a care paradigm that would previously not have been accepted or uh, we would never have even tried because we would be worried about the impact it would have on the top line. So there's an acceptance and now uh, sort of a permanence that's associated with different care uh, 
uh, mechanisms that will impact profitability uh, going forward and hopefully not impact top line revenue. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Final two questions, both sort of forward looking. Uh, going back yeah. to the clinical trial question, how are you looking at restarting those? Is that something that you have a roadmap for yet or is there still too much uncertainty out there? No, so we're, we're restarting those. Uh, Germany's opening up. And mm-hmm. again, most of our studies are being done in, in Germany and Switzerland. So uh, they're opening up. We're, we're doing it uh, following all of the, the local and the state and national jurisdictions that um, are putting out policies. So we're following all the rules, but we are, we are reengaging in those. Uh, and then we're also recommencing the, uh, the preclinical, a lot of the animal work that that's mm-hmm. required for our therapeutic companies. That's, that's, re, that's, that's opening up again. So, so we're, uh, we're moving forward. Great. And, and the last question has to do with, with employment. Uh, as we talked about and hit upon a few times, there has been a reduction in, in, in size and in, in um, employees at, in MedTech, excuse me. <laughs> Many MedTechs have had to, to shed, shed employees. There are folks out there who are looking for work. Uh, some I'm sure are feeling discouraged. How are you, how would you advise people to approach this time and to find the right next opportunity for them? Yeah, it's interesting. So I teach a class at Harvard Business School. And when I asked the, the, the students in the class, how many people want to be entrepreneurial, uh, everybody raises their hand. Okay. And then when I go back and do an assessment of how many people went into entrepreneurship roles, uh, usually it's one out of 90, uh, two out of 90. Mm-hmm. This COVID opportunity allows for people, in my opinion, to assess, are they employees or are they entrepreneurs? And, you know, we've had a sustained and will continue to have a sustained period of time where you can do your own scientific experiment on yourself. If you're a person who can figure out that uh, you can create, you know, a charter for yourself and then on a daily basis uh, work towards that without having a lot of accountability and without having a lot of in, uh, input and realize uh, something from that experience. And it's easy to do for a day. It's hard to do for 30 days. It's almost impossible to do for 90 days, but that's what entrepreneurship is. It's this very interesting time for people to really say, what is my personality suited for? Is it mm-hmm. suited for doing something entrepreneurial or is it suited for working in a company? Um, I don't think there's, it, it's a hard time to get a job and uh, because people are not worrying about bringing new people on. They're thinking about obviously contracting and trying to save money. So I would not say it's, uh, it's opportune time to go out and look for a job. I do think it's a great time to really try on, you know, what is, what do you want the next 10 years of your life to be? So mm-hmm. to, to get away from the urgent and start thinking a little bit about the strategic uh, from a personal standpoint, and see if you can you can live in that discomfort, which is obviously the discomfort that an entrepreneur lives with every day. Yep, that's a great point. And then sometimes these are the moments where we we don't have a lot of other options that uh, we're really able to choose the right one that's available to that's, us. So that's exactly right, Tom. That's great, great advice. Okay, always a pleasure talking to you, Duke. Thank you for the time. Hey, Tom. Yeah, we'll be in touch. Thanks. Well, that's a, that's a wrap for this episode, our 10th episode of Device Talks Weekly. Chris, uh, where can folks find you on social media? Oh, they can find me on Twitter at Newmarker, just like a new marker. I'm on LinkedIn. And, you know, they can also reach me at cnewmarker at wtwhmedia.com. Okay. And you can find me on Twitter. I'm at MedTechTom. I'm on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. And of course, send me an email if you want to uh, connect directly. 
T Salemi, that's S-A-L-E-M-I at W-T-W-H media.com. Please do share these podcasts. We're, uh, we're very happy with uh, the number of listeners we've had listening to the first 10. We'd love to have even more over the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50. So please share this. And when you do, uh, link to Chris and or myself. We'd love to be part of that conversation. So that's a wrap. Tune in next time. We'll have another great episode of Device Talks Weekly for you. Thanks a lot. Stay safe.